Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. A lot of people know you the world over, Crystal, for what you've done over the last 20 or so years. But can you take us back a little bit further? Because my understanding is you got into the gym and into bodybuilding off the back of an injury, right? Can you talk a little bit about getting into the gym and how your love affair with weightlifting started? Yeah, for sure. It's kind of very similar to how I got into uh, biohacking. And we can talk about that later. You know, a health implication happened and that's how I fell into it. And it was the same with uh, bodybuilding or resistance training. Uh, I spent God, from the age of six to 19, close to 20, racing motocross and enduros. And I uh, just had so many injuries, you know, from a developing age. And um, nothing really helped with the, 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 I'd say, the more impactful injury, which was my back, um, you know, such as chiropractic care or osteopaths or massage therapy. Nothing helped until I went to physiotherapy with resistance weights. I was alleviated of some of the issues that I was dealing with with my back because my muscle had atrophied. I wasn't trying to build muscle and I had a lot of pressure on my spine. So when I started to release that pressure from my spine from resistance training, I was alleviated of those issues. And then I was alleviated of the symptoms of depression that I had associated with it that I hadn't even realized I had. Because when you have that much pain, you kind of adapt and you get used to it. And I guess depression was one of those symptoms. So I was trying to escape the symptoms of the depression with uh, and the symptoms of losing my identity, which had become motocross, with just doing drugs, drinking alcohol, partying, and that was my escape. But you know, I'd have to come back to reality every Monday, and unfortunately, it didn't get any better. Those Mondays weren't any better; they'd get worse. So I had to figure something out, and thankfully, the resistance training through physiotherapy, I guess, encouraged me so much more than anything that I'd learned in school because I was retaining this content. I enjoyed the content that I was now studying. So I decided to go to college for three years in the 90s to study international health and sports therapy. And, uh, you know, that's how I kind of got hooked on it from there because I really enjoyed it. I found that was my purpose. I was kind of, after I uh, you know gave up on motocross, I didn't know if I was going to make a career out of motocross. Uh, but I, you know, that become a reality and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I went and did eight months of an engineering course, precision and maintenance engineering, realized that wasn't for me, did some, a lot of other jobs, you know, working as a, as a driver, a warehouse furniture, uh, warehouse driver, uh, warehouse, uh, furniture, furniture loader. I was, uh, I worked in a place called Oriel structures that would put up like, um, you know, like gazebos and stuff like that. I worked in bars. I worked, I did door work. I did all sorts. I was a building laborer, all sorts. And I just didn't know what I wanted. And that's when I found this passion. That's what I realized was my purpose. I want to talk to you about some of the defining moments of your professional life, but it seems to me that might have been one of those sliding door moments. You know, you're a, a young guy, you've had disappointment. The thing you thought was going to happen hasn't. There's the booze, there's the drugs. And on the other side, there's the gym and lifting weights. Do you look back, Chris? Is that the sliding doors moment when you're traveling, you know, the red eye flights, you're thinking back about the defining moments of your life? Is that kind of where the fork in the road is? 100%, 100%. Because if I look at where I was, even though I grew up on a farm, I quickly, after I'd given up motocross because I was so fixated, I guess I've become addicted to adrenaline. And I couldn't get it anymore. And then I plugged myself into a, a another community. I'm not saying it's a bad community because some of these people are my friends now, but that community was just let's party. Let's see how far extreme we can take this. And, um, you know, I can see that's definitely a sliding moment because some of those people didn't make it out alive. You know, some of those people are still there and uh, it's not a pretty sight. And that could have easily been me. So uh, I'm very, very glad what happened did happen because that was definitely a defining moment. I do look back and I'm thinking, how on earth did this happen? 
I've no idea because I didn't plan any of it. You know, however I di- however I work today kind of dictates tomorrow. I don't think too far into the uh, into the future, and uh, so I do often look back and think, God, I am you know very blessed. I am lucky, uh, but I have to slow down in order to realize that because I'm so dopamine driven and looking towards the future uh, that it's very it's very hard for me to sometimes sit down and go exhale and enjoy the moment because I've, I I feel like I've just started. You said you don't know how it happened, but I wouldn't be doing my job as a journalist unless I asked that question. In time, looking back, what were the, the, the key benchmarks, the key milestones that meant you went from that guy looking at booze and drugs or another path to getting where you are now, the huge success, the respect, the admiration you've got across the globe? I mean, Going back and telling that teenage kid, you probably wouldn't have believed it, but you've done it. So how do you kind of break down and analyze how you've got here? Well, there's a, definitely a couple of key moments that I wouldn't suggest people go out and do, but that's getting arrested. Getting arrested and uh, getting being handcuffed and being taken to your parents' house at like three o'clock in the morning so they can search your property. You know, that was a defining moment because, you know, the the look on my father's face and the conversation that he had with me a couple of days later, you know, that's something that I'd remember forever because I really, really do look up to my parents, really, really look up to my uh, father for what he's provided, you know, because we, we did struggle when I was growing up. And uh, he's, you know, they have made a lot of success since. And I've just witnessed it from going to absolutely nothing to something and uh, I never really wanted to disappoint them. I always wanted them to be very, very proud of me. And that was a defining moment where I just felt so much shame and embarrassment. And that was a tipping point for me. You know, it's like some people that are overweight don't really realize it until maybe a little kid points and says something or they see a picture of them on holiday and go, wow, that's a defining moment. That was one of the major tipping moments uh, for me, for sure. And then further from there, I guess it was more of a a scaling process where all of a sudden I'm retaining the content that I'm learning. I'm feeling that cognitively I feel so much better because now I'm feeding myself with the nutrients that it utilizes and the micronutrients to recycle not only for bodily food, but brain food. And I think that is something that a lot of people miss out on. They think food aesthetics, abs, pecs, they don't know, of course, we understand the internal health, but the cognitive health. And that was the major addiction point to me. I'm like, wow, I always want to feel like this. If this is how I eat, this is how I sleep, this is how I hydrate. And, you know, I'm giving myself a new purpose to drive towards. And I do like a sense of urgency. So short term goals as well as the long term, but I work very well with short term goals. That was a defi- another defining moment. I'm like, wow, I can feel this good. And I don't even have to take drugs. Okay, this is this is this is the path that I'm going on. Is there a moment where you had that first taste of success? Something that made you think the fitness industry, the health industry, this is where I belong. I can do something in here. Just trying to think whether or not it was one kind of lightning bolt moment where you realized that this was for you or whether it was a series of little wins that that led to your position in the industry now. There's a series of little wins. So um in the late 90s, I went and worked on cruise liners for a little while and I uh, worked as a personal trainer, then as a body therapist and massage therapist because I had all those qualifications as well. And I found out the Americans tip a massage therapist better than a personal trainer. So that's why I transitioned over to that. And, um, and then I moved to Australia uh, shortly after. And within a couple of years of being there, I'd uh, purchased my own gym. And that was one of the defining moments. You know, I would I was competing in natural bodybuilding shows. And part of my cardio in the morning was I'd have these, this is obviously before the internet, I'd have these like trifold leaflets and I'd just put them in uh, letterboxes. I would make sure that I would drive to an area that was, you know, that I had properties that were like a million dollars and up. And then I'd put in all these uh, leaflets every single morning, seven days a week. Uh, to try to get as many clientele as possible. So I'd train a lot of these people in their homes, in the park, on the beach. And then the money that I saved from that, I was able to purchase my first gym. And that was a defining moment for me. That was one of them. I felt great. Now I can do whatever I want. And I just focused on 
uh, eight, 12, and 18-week transformations. So there's a sense of urgency. You can sign up for personal training like a pack of 10, pack of 20. I wanted them to have end goals, and then we could look at further goals from there. And I'd say that other defining moments was a couple of years after that, um, I started writing content. I, I, I failed in school, like absolutely everything. I hated school. So I bought, I bought Miriam Webster's book on journalistic writing, taught myself how to write. And then I had a friend of mine, Gary Phillips, who was a photographer for Muscle and Fitness and Flex magazine, teach me how to shoot as well. And, you know, a lot of cameras do all the work for you. You just need to know the angles. And uh, then I started submitting content to publications. And when they started to get published and I was actually getting paid for this, that was another defining moment because I thought, you know what? This is what I want to do now. I want to reach out to even more people. So that's when I gave up everything and decided, okay, if I want to do this full time, because I was doing it for Flex and Muscle and Fitness in Australia and a lot of European magazines, I wanted to work for WIDA publications straight out of the US, be in Venice, California, the mecca of bodybuilding. So that's when I decided to sell everything, go there and kind of risk it all really. And within six months, I got myself a writer's and photographer's contract with Weeda Publications, probably through annoyance because I was just submitting so many articles because I thought the more that I can write, the more that could possibly get published, the more that I could possibly get paid. So that was another defining moment for me to get into the journalistic area. I want to just unpack some of that, Chris, because the way you've just kind of thrown those bombs out there, you know, I moved to Australia, I opened a gym. I'm in Venice Beach. I'm writing for the biggest fitness magazines in the world. You're kind of making these these statements without really, I mean, there's no gloating there. These are huge achievements. But I'm trying to get my, I guess my question is, you make these huge achievements that for most people, one of those steps would be a career-defining moment. You make them seem very easy. Was it or was it just a, a relentlessness that you were never, ever going to stop until you got, got to where you wanted to be? Yeah, I didn't think that there would. I, I, I never have a plan B. You know, I never think, well, if this doesn't work, I'll do this. I, I just just keep going until it will stick. And I guess, you know, some people would go, wow, that's very that's successful. To me, because I'm so sympathetic dominant and I'm so dopamine driven, uh, driven uh, uh, I'd say success for me is to slow down enjoy the moments because I envy that in other people. May, people may envy this, but it's very difficult for me to slow down and go, okay, I'm going to unwind for the evening and sleep well because I wake up with a form of anxiety every morning. I got to get this done. I got to do that because by midday, what if a hundred e more emails have hit my uh, inbox? So I better go, 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 go now. Um, but in looking back, I don't think I realized at the time because I'm on a constant journey. You know, it's like somebody getting ready for a bodybuilding show. They then compete in that bodybuilding show and then they fall into an abyss of depression because they've just been focused on that goal so much. And then they binge eat after that or someone doing a transformation and a yo-yo because you're just so focused. And I think that's that was or is the weakness with me, I'm always focused, move, 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 move. Like if I've published a book, don't tell me to market it. Don't tell me to read through it now. If I've done a video series, don't tell me to look at it. I'm not on to the next thing, you know? So I really need to slow down and, uh, you know, so it, it can be a positive. It's definitely a strength, but it can be a weakness as well. And I think the balancing act is where the success is. How have you managed to address that imbalance is there anything that you found particularly successful in allowing you a little bit of, of time to step back or switch off or is it an ongoing battle where your brain is just as you say on 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 yes it's an ongoing battle but i do things i do uh, various things to help with it like i've gone on a 10-day vipassana you know where it's a silent retreat no eye contact it's just meditation basically from six o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock in the evening. Uh, so I do practice a form of meditation. A lot of the time I'll have to combine our ancestral wisdom with today's technology. So I'll use something, I'm not affiliated with any of these companies, like a brain tap, which use light therapy through uh, by penetrating through the retina, your ear canals, and then guided meditation because I'm, I like someone to sit me down, shut up, okay, now listen to me. So guided meditation really helps. And changing my routine because 
I've done an organic acids test and it shows that I have a huge amount of uh, dopamine and a huge amount of uh, noradrenaline in the morning. So I wake up, go, 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 go. But then by the evening, I've run out of all of it. So then during the night, that pool kind of overflows. So I wake up with too much of it again. So I've kind of changed my routine instead of waking up and having my coffee and maybe getting doing my cardio and getting in the sauna and the ice bath and red lights because I have this routine I'm very structural. Um, now I try not to have so much structure, but I'll utilize the dopamine and uh, the noradrenaline to physical use. So I'll get rid of it from a physical aspect now instead of a mental aspect by getting on a phone or on a computer reacting because I have clients in all types of time zones. So I wake up to a lot of information and that can make me very reactory for the rest of the day. Much like if you wake up and you have cereals in the morning, all the chances of you having cravings throughout the day is going to be much higher now. So I've changed that script now and instead I use physical energy to get rid of some of that dopamine as opposed to mental energy, which can have negative connotations, but the physical has nothing but positive. So now I change my routine. And if I can't get my sauna in that day or my ice bath or the red lights or the uh, meditation, then don't stress about it. It's okay. Because I would stress about getting all these biohacks in or meditation for my longevity where in retrospect, I was probably taking years off my biological age by stressing about it because I try like I try to get so much in. And like I said, I travel so much. So when I do go home, I'm like, okay, let's pack it in while I'm here and in routine. And I just need to chill out to relax a little bit. You mentioned it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword having the, a, a brain work the way it does where you are on and on and driven, driven. Obviously, that does lead to enormous success. I've spoken to a lot of people in, in the fitness industry across the globe, and it seems to me those that have had the most success are the ones that tend to move the goalpost the most. They achieve a goal, but what, as soon as they almost get there, they push the goalpost a little bit further, and that helps drive them on. Again, I can see the advantage of that, but the flip side is, do you ever take the time to, to slow down and smell the roses and, and bask in some, some mini successes? Do you identify with that moving the goalpost mentality? Oh, 100%, because that's what feeds us. We feel that's where the purpose is in the distance. It's not now. It's always in a distance. When we know the success is right now, uh, I see that with a lot of like celebrity uh, clients that I work with. A lot of them are unhappy. You know, they go to work every day. They've got everything that you could believe that they need. You know, they have financial success, they have homes in various places, but they're confined to the process. And uh, very few people bask in that glory where, you know, you may see people that live in poverty. And I see that uh, a lot in the countries that I travel. And they're really happy. And they'll invite you in that they're very family orientated. They love the connection. And that's where their success is. And uh, I feel by moving those goalposts into the future all the time, look, you could get to the age of 70, 80, and those goals, goalposts are still in front of you. And now it's too late for you to really, really enjoy it. So I haven't enjoyed a lot of those successes. Yes, I do. You know, when I visit my family in Wales, you know, I take some time out, spend some time with my nieces and my parents and uh, my little nephew and stuff. That is beautiful. I love that. I absolutely love that. But um, as I said, I'm pretty much booked out until March next year. My goal is is not to say, okay, well, let's fill up uh, uh, April and May and June. My goal is to finally to say, you know what? I'm going to be 50 next year. Let's really start enjoying the fruits of the labor. Um, and that doesn't mean going out and spending a lot of money, but just taking time back for myself to spend time with my wife, spend time with my dog and just be in one place and just enjoy the now and release some oxytocin and serotonin and just pull back on the on the dopamine and adrenaline. You mentioned turning 50 next year. I think a lot of people get close to that age where it's on the horizon. They begin to think about what they've done with their life and also what they want to achieve moving forward. You're obviously looking in the future, but you said you don't look too far ahead. Are there anything you approach such a landmark age, Chris, that you're like, I still have to do this? Is there kind of like that 
I don't want to say bucket list, but a priority list of things you haven't done that absolutely have to be ticked off. And if so, what are they? Well, from a business standpoint, it depends if we're talking business or lifestyle. Lifestyle for me is travel. I just love traveling, uh, going off the beaten track and experiencing new cultures. You know, that's that's very exciting to me. I like that. Um, so that's definitely a, a lifetime goal that I want to do more of. I may just purchase, you know, my wife and I have to- spoke about this, may just get um, like a camper van and just live out of that for eight months and travel around the US to begin with. It's such a vast country, but there's a lot of places that I want to see around the world. I've been to many, many, many countries, but a lot of the time I'm not really traveling to them on my terms. You know, it's for business, it's for seminars, like I was just in Amsterdam last week. And it's just, I don't really see much of those places. So I want to actually start traveling to those places on my terms and exploring a little bit more. Uh, you know, that's one aspect. From a business standpoint, yeah, you know, like I've got a gym franchise in India. We've got 13. I want to work on scaling them to 20. That's the goal, you know. Um, we do have a crazy amount of offers from people to open franchises, but we're very, very particular. So we make it very slow and very hard on ourselves, but we always want quality. And I call them academies where we can educate people so we do it very slow and meticulous uh, in that aspect, but we do want to get to about 20, 20 gyms there. And, uh, and then from other aspects, you know, what I really like about the longevity and like the, you know, this, this word biohacking does get bastardized a little bit, but I really do like looking into the new technology and how that's helping people and investing in some of those startups, you know, because I, I see there's a lot of value in a lot of these, you know, now we see vagal nerve stimulators are coming out and people like Pulse, Pulsetto, people are having a lot of success because the countries or the country, the world is becoming more stressed, more anxious, more angry. They're dealing with so many d- various mental disorders. So we're seeing the biohacking community uh, and technology coming out with a lot of these products that really, really do help people. You know, we see ice baths have uh, become very trendy over the past few years. Uh, and I think a lot of it is because it turns a vagal nerve and it helps people with mental stability. Of course, it's physical recovery, but it's the mental stability, I think, uh, is what's causing more and more people to use this as a trend. So, you know, that's exciting to me. And that's where I want to put a little bit more time and effort into exploring those. You don't strike me as somebody who really does regrets. But looking back on, on your life up to this point, again, with a big birthday coming, Are there any kind of mistakes you do look back on and think, if I had my time differently, I'd do it again? I mean, from a professional or or, or a personal basis, Chris. No, like, you know, I've had some very trying times in my past. Um, You know, like I've I've had a broken marriage. Um, I've had, you know, a couple of businesses with business partners go wrong. And uh, there's a couple of businesses, you know, where I'd blame the business partners and there's a couple of businesses that have gone wrong where I blame myself, but I don't regret any of them because I don't feel that I would have got here where I am right now without those mistakes. So I don't really call them mistakes. They're just challenges that we either learn from and we build upon or we regress, you know, we, we regret upon them. You know, like I lost my, uh, res- my visa uh, to the US. I got chucked out in the country for a couple of years here. I had to go, you know, I had to foreclose my property. My, I had to foreclose my investment properties. I had to give away my pets, uh, find homes for them, and, uh, you know, put everything into storage, not knowing if I was ever going to get back into the country. Like, that was a very trying time. I had a great job, just published a book through Simon & Schuster, which was then the second largest publisher in the world, but I couldn't promote it, you know? And that was a really, really hard, difficult time for me. But in retrospect, I'm like, so glad it happened because maybe I wouldn't be where I am now. So what happened and, and how did you begin to, to rebuild your career and, and bounce back? Well, luckily, I was the editor-in-chief of Bodybuilder.com at that time. And luckily, Ryan DeLuca, who's the founder of Bodybuilder.com, completely supported me at that time. He allowed me to continue to work uh, for Bodybuilder.com, even though then I had to move back to Wales. And, uh, I, you know, I, I went to uh, immigration I think it's on seven occasions with a waiver and every time it got declined, you know, because the people at immigration can have more power than the president. 
They, you know, if they've had their coffee in the morning, sure, they'll stamp it. If they're not feeling good, they don't stamp it. So that was very, very difficult. Um, uh, but I just start, I just kept sidestepping. So I went to India and I did a, like a book signing. And, um, during that time, one of my books got into the hands of one of the celebrities over there. And, uh, he then asked if I would help transform him. And, uh, so I, I had a consultation with this guy that I've never heard of. I transformed him and that made national headlines in newspapers and stuff like that. So then that drove me to India. So I spent more time in India. And then during this process, I got my waiver approved to go back into the US, which by the way, was no different to the waiver that I gave him in the very first place, because there's no much more than I could give him. Uh, but I decided to stay in India a little bit longer because I could definitely see there was a void for education uh, for proper gyms. Uh, you know, so I started flying in a lot of other international trainers from the US and the UK to help facilitate this demand for like celebrities over there to transform. So I didn't dwell on it. It was a hard time, but I knew that I had to keep moving forward somehow. And that was a perfect sidestep and transition before moving back into the US, which was like 2016. Focusing on, on India, you've obviously had huge success out there. Are you still surprised a little bit by the lack of awareness that the, the West has in, in the fitness industry on, on just how big a market India is and how big the opportunity is out oh, there? Oh, for sure. With no doubt. You know, we we don't really realize anything exists over there um, until you go there and you're actually part of that community and you're plugged into it. It's huge. It's absolutely massive. And the one thing I do love about countries like India is that their passion for knowledge and to learn more is just massive. Like I did a, um, I do quite often, I'll do some tours uh, with educational seminars. I just, I did one some years ago with Ben Greenfield from the biohacking space. And we're probably going to be doing one again now in January and February. And just the amount of interest and educated questions that we got really blew me away. There's a, such a need there. Um, you know, and, and what I see, you know, like for instance, what happened in the fitness community and bodybuilding community, I'd say like in their late eighties, nineties in, in America, when you'd have your Van Dams and your Stallones and your Arnold Schwarzeneggers really dominating the screen. And obviously gym culture and supplement companies kind of blew up following that. I saw that happen in India. And I kind of see that happening now with the longevity aspect because India does have the highest and quickest growing rates of diet, diet diabetes uh, in the country. And there's a more need and people and awareness for people to get their health back on track. And there's a, there's a lot of passion uh, for it. However, their cultural demands around food is like the fast food culture that we're dealing with in uh, the US and in the UK, well, especially in the US, you know, those cultural norms really hold people back because there's so many celebrations and the celebrations are surrounded by sugar and fried foods. And it's, it, you know, and that's where a lot of the health issues are coming from. With, again, your big birthday coming up next year, I hate to keep reminding you you're going to be 50. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's fine. I feel good. I feel a lot younger. <laughs> How how important is is legacy to you? You've obviously had enormous success in multiple different parts of the of the fitness industry, but is that something that that drives you having a legacy, being remembered for something, or are you always kind of looking at what you can do in in the short term? No, um, I don't. I, I guess I don't really think too much about legacy. But the, a video series uh, or video trainer, I should say, which is a video series over a twelve week period where somebody watches me every single day for 12 weeks. The most recent one that I just released is called Legacy because it, that is my last ever fat loss video trainer that I'm uh, filming. You know, it's a, these, these video trainers are huge, huge undertakings. So I, I, it is something that I am thinking about. And I guess in the world of so many influencers out there online now, I just want to be real. I want to be remembered as the one that was very authentic, that was humble, that you know, some people, you know, who've known me for years and they've seen me years later, they're like, wow, you haven't changed. Well, I want to change for the better, of course, but I just want to keep everything 
intact and not take any of this for granted, you know, because I'm not qualified to be anyone else. So I want to be myself and want to be authentic, but I want to ensure that, you know, what I, I'm, I just have a no bullshit attitude. And I guess I want to be remembered of that. No, no gray area. It's black and white and uh, authenticity is organically thrown into that mix. It leads nicely to my next question, Chris, because it's going to be, what is the, your advice for young people wanting to make a name for themselves in the fitness industry? We've talked about influencers briefly there. It seems you're rewarded by being very controversial, by being very outlandish. That's what the algorithm is going to reward. But authenticity is obviously very important to you. What's your advice for the next generation of people who want to emulate you? How do they stand out? How do they make themselves heard? Yeah, there's so many different ways of doing it. I'd say find your niche. Like for niche, my niche is like uh, transformations. You know, of course, I do help professional athletes. I do help actors uh, or celebrities. But the main niche for me is transformations. You know, helping someone regain their life not only from the neck down, but from the neck up, because obviously that's where the real transformation happens. And you're just as much a life coach or psychiatrist, even though I'm not qualified to be one, feels like that, or a parent, as you are a trainer. And uh, you have to be that confident, but uh, or confidant, I should say. But I'd say find your niche. That's the number one, but don't try to be different because of the sake of it. You know, so many people, like you said, try to distinguish themselves by being different or controversial. Um, you know, if it fits your macros, I can eat all this crap and still lose weight. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, I'd say the priority should always be health. Make sure that the health is your priority. Your most important muscle is not your abs or your pecs, it's your heart. And uh, obviously your cognitive function. So if you can prioritize your longevity and your health span, then everything else will fall in place because not only do people want to look good, they want to feel good. And some people are on very, very strict protocols and, uh, you know, they'll yo-yo, they binge eat or whatever, and they're not going to feel good. So it's, there's no longevity in that aspect. There's, 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 it's just short term. And uh, that that's basically a yo-yo of fluctuations that deals with a lot of decision-making fatigue, so you cannot live a normal life. So I'd say the two aspects for that is, and you know, if you're an online trainer, then you have to have cadence with the content that you're putting out. Remember, people do not give a shit about you or me. They give a shit about what you can do for them. So I always put that message out on how you can help. Get people to reach out to you. Get people to engage with you. Get people to trust you. And that's what I like I do with these video series. I just put my, I wear my heart on, on my sleeve with these video trainers. So people get to know me. People get to relate and engage. And uh, I think that's the biggest part is getting people to engage with your content. And if it resonates, great. If it doesn't, don't be shy in referring those people to someone else who can help them. You and I will remember when the only fitness information you could get were magazines, right? Which to a lot of young people would just seem like an alien concept. These magazines don't exist anymore. We then saw the transition into websites like bodybuilding.com, runaway success, hugely popular and influential. And then into social media where we've seen almost the complete democratization of fitness information. Anyone can, can find an audience and give them advice. Do you, on hindsight, as someone who's been at the forefront of the fitness media industry for so long, Chris, is it been a force for good? The fact that now anyone can build a platform and tell people what to do when it comes to their health and fitness, or do you think maybe there are more negatives than positives? It balances itself out for sure. You know, I, I guess I, I'm one of those people that don't look, I, I don't really look at a lot of people's uh, social media accounts. I've never been into reality TV and a lot of it is like reality TV. However, I will look into accounts that is inspiring to me or maybe fun or educational. You know, I love certain types of sports. So maybe I'm going to follow some, uh, some sporting events or athletes, something like that, something that's going to feed me. So I'm very particular on not allowing social media to use me. I use it and a lot of people use it to their advantage, but that's not always a good way. So you have to, you know, even when at bodybuild.com, we'd have so much content going out that would contradict each other. So you just have to be very, very careful that the content or the person that you're following has authenticity behind them. Maybe do a little bit of research, follow them for a while and see if it resonates with you. 
there, I'm sure there's a lot of people that follow my content and it doesn't resonate completely with them. But what I do encourage people to do is like, write your own book. You may get a chapter from this person, get a chapter from that person and take whatever positives you can take from everybody, but disregard the negatives. If the negatives don't work for you, of course, disregard it, but just take on the positives and utilize your own program. So for instance, if you're following like a training style that I encourage, but then a training style that Dorian Yates encourages, and then something that Mike Mensa or someone else encourages, then maybe do one week of that, one week of what, one week of that, and see if that works for you. It doesn't have to be one all and be all. How much has your training philosophy changed over the course of your career? Is it something where you have the basics that you've always done and you're finding improvements and tweaks and changes? Or have you readily accepted completely new approaches as and when it's felt right? Yeah, so it has changed quite a bit over the years, especially as I've had a lot of injuries. So I've had more injuries than pretty much any of my clients, I think. You know, I've, I've torn like my, my pec, my trap, my lat, my tricep, pretty much everything within my shoulders, uh, separated both my AC joints, uh, joints, tore my hamstring. So I've dealt with a lot of injuries. So my training has changed over the years. And these injuries are from outside of the gym, not in the gym. It's like snowboarding, mountain biking, surfing, whatever, motocross. Um, it has changed from that aspect. So I used to train very heavy duty. You know, I'm good friends with Dorian Yates and I used to train that sort of style. But with my structure, which is definitely my mother's side of the family, more smaller bone, but I've got my father's side of the family's strength, just natural, naturally strong, they don't mix well together. So uh, the heavy duty, I kind of threw out many, many years ago, probably about 13, 14 years ago. And I train with a lot of intensity now, high repetitions, short rest periods with a lot of intensity, but I'm one of these rare people that loves cardio. I absolutely love cardio. Hence why I've done some, I've done like four Ironman triathlons. I've done ultra marathon because I love cardio. So that allows me to recover very efficiently between my sets so I can do very high repetitions and push it to failure but rest for a minimal amount of time. And I believe not only the trauma from resistance, but the trauma from intensity does create growth as well. So I always go into the gym looking for a traumatic experience. And it isn't always a lot of resistance because that can lead to injury, especially over time. And what I did in my uh, most recent video series is cycled my training. So for one week, it's very low repetitions. Next week, it's medium repetitions, and then one week is just all out. So anywhere between 10 and 50 repetitions, all within one workout. And then I'll go back to week one, and that seems to work well, and it gives the body and the central nervous system a little bit of a rest and recovery um, as opposed to just smashing it every single time because there's only so many clicks that you get off that pen. I'm glad you mentioned triathlon because I wanted to ask you about that. You're not, let's just say, the typical build of a triathlete. When you're on that start line and the other competitors take a look at you, are they doing double takes? Yeah, and, and you know what I love about the uh, triathlete or Ironman community is that they're all so supportive. So yeah, a lot of them will say they'll they'll comment, they'll ask something, and even when we're actually out on the on the race course, you know, people will say, "Hey, nice carbs, dude," you know, or something along those lines. Because, yeah, I look very, very different compared to uh, the other people out there. Yeah, like the last Ironman that I did, I was like 220 pounds at like five foot eight. And a lot of these guys were like 160 pounds. So obviously I stick out a lot. What's been the biggest change in training as a concept in the time you've been involved? Because obviously we've seen the transition from gym floor personal training to online and, and online is huge now. Uh, for better or for worse, obviously it's a lower barrier to entry a lot of turnover, the standards aren't there. Would you say that's been the biggest change that you've seen, just the huge explosion of online training? Yeah, for sure. Because like um, when I started out, yeah, there was personal trainers. You would never get personal trainers for those, for say, bodybuilders though. You know, there's a few trainers out there. There was Charles Glass, Hanny Rambord started a little bit later as well. Then like Neil Hill from the UK there. But before then, there was no trainers. There was no trainers. Um, so to see that, that that's definitely the biggest transition. And then, like you said, online training. So, you know, the majority of my clients are overseas. Uh, but the great thing is, like, I just had a client who was shooting a movie in Italy 
he was able to send me pictures and videos of what he looks like so I can help him through the carb load process and understand exactly where, need, where we need to be. And I've worked with that client before, so it's a little bit easier when it's your second or third time to kind of peak. Uh, but it can be very, very difficult in circuit, certain circumstances if you're working with that client for the very first time and they have to have a certain look, you know, to very price precise dimensions, then it can be a little bit difficult, you know. And that's why I like to visit some of these clients just once so I can have an understanding as we go through that uh, peak process. Uh, the second and third times are a little bit easier. But the wonderful thing about it is that a lot of these people don't have the support of their families. Uh, they don't have a trainer within their vicinity that they feel that they can relate to or trust. Um, so they're able to, you know, be in a town in South Africa or Africa or something like that and reach out and engage with you. And if you've got a private community that is engaging as well, now they feel closer to that private support group than they do to their own family or support that they have at home, which is very, very good and encouraging because you know what it's like. It's, it's weird that we live in a world where if we could be at a social gathering, but if one of us breaks out a Tupperware container and wants to eat food that is actually good for us, then people can kind of frown upon it or think it's a, a little bit alien, which is the complete opposite of what life should be. But that's reality where they feel now because they have this support group that we're able to offer online that they don't feel so alienated because there's under other people within that group that are doing the same thing. I've spoken over the course of my career to a number of leading bodybuilders and physique fitness models and a surprising number of them, at least to me, have admitted some sort of dysmorphia, some sort of eating disorder, looking at their bodies and just not being able to see what the rest of the world see. Chris, is that something you've experienced? Obviously, you've, you've built your physique. You, you've had that amazing physique and still do. Have you ever encountered those kind of emotions? And secondly, are you surprised by how often we see it? Is this a new thing or is this something that's always existed? It's just more obvious now because people are more open about the, the mental health battles they're having. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, th I think we're seeing a lot more of it because uh, I think people are encouraged now to talk about it, especially men where, you know, I definitely come from an upbringing that you definitely wouldn't talk about it. You know, it's toughen up, shut up and toughen up. And it, it, it's okay, it worked for me, uh, but yeah, I could see how it wouldn't work for a lot of people. And now we're given more platforms to communicate. Like I just spoke to my therapist this morning, you know, she's based in the UK. And now I have that access. I got someone to talk to and I don't see a negative connotation surrounded that. I think it's like brain optimization. It's self-awareness optimization. Uh, but as far as the body dysmorphia, yes, like I've known for many, many years and seen it within like the bodybuilding culture, those people either got bullied, they had, uh, you know, confidence issues, lack of confidence, you know, so many different things, which led to them to create this shell around them, which gave them more confidence. A lot of these people are still introverts. So I'm, I'm quite the introvert. And, um, I think, I, I think a lot of us train and it, not for the physical aspects that we get out of it or the aesthetics. It's the therapy. It's the therapy. That's what we get out of it. And that's why it's very difficult for a lot of us to pull back because it's a necessity. If you were to ask myself or a lot of these other people, like, how do you stay motivated? It's like, I, I don't know how not to train. It's, uh, it's a necessity for me. It's like me getting my AA batteries in the morning. If I don't want to train, I may, may not be a good person to be around. I may be a little bit more highly strung, you know, so it's a good outlet. Now, it doesn't have to be weight training. It could be going for a run. It could be a yoga session, a game of tennis, just some sort of physical outlet. You know, it's like if you leave a dog at home and don't walk him for the day, he's probably going to chew the house apart. And I think it's the same with the human psyche. We just don't realize it. You know, a lot of this frustration comes out in different ways. But I think if a lot of people had more physical activity and we know the longevity aspects associated with it, um, I think that would help a lot of people with their mental condition. You know, I've seen it with people that are dealing with like anxiety, depression, and that physical aspect has been the, the perfect pill for them to take care of it. With social media now, Hollywood stars and, and Bollywood stars as well, 
the average guy, the average girl on the street just thinks they train hard and eat really well, where obviously people in the know, there are performance-enhancing drugs and, and other things going on. What's your take, Chris, on whether or not there should be more transparency You know, when the likes of the, the, the big Hollywood A-listers, should they talk more about their drug use to, to kind of normalise it? Or do you, can you understand their position of keeping it to themselves? Yeah, um, like, well, I'll, I'll say one thing. So with my clients, I don't help any anyone on uh, if anybody has ever come to me to say, can you help me with steroids? I'm like, that's not my deal. I can refer you to somebody who could help you, but I don't train anybody in that way because I'm always uh, trained as a nat- natural athlete myself. And my goal is my priority is to reduce my biological age. Now, I understand if people have major low testosterone levels, like I know since the C word happened, uh, a few years ago, people got long COVID and it really negatively impacted their testosterone levels and they couldn't get it back. Okay, so if you need to do testosterone replacement therapy, okay, I understand. As long as it's under a clinician setting and you're controlled and uh, you know we're looking at your blood markers, then that's absolutely fine. But when it comes to a lot of people that are taking steroids, mainly bodybuilders, but yeah, it could be uh, celebrities as well, um, I don't know if the transparency would be a good thing or a bad thing because that may just encourage people off the street to go, okay, well, he looks like that because of that. I'm going to go and take it and probably double the dose. Because what I have found like with professional bodybuilders that are very, very smart about what they do, they take half the amount of the recreational person off the street who's trying to look like that. Um, because they've gone online and seen a cycle that someone thinks that somebody is on, and then they take that, and sometimes, you know what the humans are like, they're like, well, if this is good, then more's got to be better. And I think that could just open a can of worms should they do that. Um, but I do understand the, the need for transparency out there. But, you know, I think a lot of people just assume it anyway. So I've got a client, so I just did a video on this, like literally two days ago. I got a client called Riddick Roshan, and he diets, I don't know what this is in pounds, but about 68 kilos is what he weighs. And he's like five foot 10. That's what I diet him down to. And a lot of people will say, he's on steroids, he's on steroids. He's not on steroids. Like the guy has natural testosterone levels of over 900. There's no reason for him to go on even TRT. But he's not a big guy. But people will see something like that. If that person has a physique better than themselves, then the assumption is always steroids. Are you aware of the growing recreational users? I think that's something that feels like, I don't know, I'm loath to call it kind of the Love Island generation of all these young guys. When I was 19, no one was stacked. And now you look at young guys and they're all in incredible shape. Now, that's great if they're taking better care of their physical and mental health. But you also hear the kind of scare stories in the mainstream media about the steroid epidemic, guys using it recreationally, still drinking, still doing you know, other drugs on the weekend. Is this something you're familiar with or are you just kind of out of the, out of the loop on that? I guess I'm a little bit more out of the loop, you know? Um, like I know when I was younger, a lot of bodybuilders would go overseas. They'd go to a place like Turkey or whatever, and then they'd come back with a load of steroids and sell it to other people in the gym just to pay for their holiday, really, and get some extra money from it as well. So I know that was happening a lot back then. Uh, and I'd say it's probably no different now. I can't, you know, maybe it is more prevalent. But like you said, I don't really look online at what other people are doing. Um, and I am a bit of a hermit. So even though I am front facing online a lot, uh, all other times I'm very much by myself, you know, so I don't really engage to find out what other people are doing. I don't, you know, if I'm at, at an event like an expo, yeah, there's a lot of people there I know. But usually you're working at that expo, so you don't really engage with other people that much. Well, neither. Well, I don't. At the end of the expo, people want to go out and party or go out for dinner. I just go straight back to my hotel room. I wanted to finish on biohacking because it's something we've alluded to several times throughout the conversation. It's obviously one of the big growth areas in, in health and fitness, you know, popularized by the likes of, of, of Andrew Huberman. What are your non-negotiables? What have you found have given you the biggest bang for your buck? Is it, you know, the red light therapy, the ice baths? Talk us through what you absolutely think people should give a uh, give an experimentation of. Got it. Yeah, I was actually with Andrew Huberman here just uh, two days ago, actually, uh, speaking of which. But I'd say the biggest thing for me has been, well, there's a couple of things, and it's all dependent on that individual as well. 
But the biggest thing here, I'll, can I give you three? <laughs> I'll have to give you three, because it's all dependent on the situation. So when I'm in a very built-up area, such as LA, where I am now, or if I'm in Mumbai or in London, grounding or earthing helps me a lot because I feel that I am electrosensitive to EMFs. If I don't ground myself a good couple of times a day, especially before bed, I find my sleep is very much disturbed. Now, I can't, you can't say that's a placebo effect because I measure my sleep when I'm sleeping, but I just sleep so much better throughout the night. I don't wake up so much or have disturbances if I earth myself. But when I'm home in Boise, I don't need to as, as much because I don't feel like I'm being penetrated with Wi-Fi and satellite signals and EMFs. But when I am at home, the cold therapy is definitely the most beneficial for me. Now, you could do cryotherapy. You could have cold shower. I, I do ice baths. Uh, because it just provides so much more mental stability for me throughout the day if I start my day with an ice bath. I just find that I don't react as quick when I do so. And uh, the third one for me has been stem cells because of the amount of injuries that I've gone through. Like I tore 68% of my tricep off uh, like a couple of years ago, ragdolling it uh, after snowboarding. And uh, I was told, you know, that's it. You're probably not going to be lifting dumbbells again in a pressing movement. And about a year later, you know, they were right. You know, I was dealing with, I only had like 20% of my strength back and I was dealing with about 70 to 80% discomfort still because they had to drill through my ulna and my humerus and reattach the tendons. And it was just, a, the surgery was much more complicated than the actual injury. Uh, but then when I went and had stem cells, and I had stem cells before in 2017, and this was like two years ago, I had them again, and it's like the best money I ever, ever spent. And obviously, stem cells and hyperbaric oxygen and other things can help reverse your biological age as well. You know, of, of course, meditation, going to bed early, eating humane raised, organic, well caught, etc., is all good for reducing your biological age. But I feel that stem cells gives much better quality of life. So it reduces the stress and can reduce your biological age as well. So I'd say those three are the biggest for me. And the two are obviously accessible to pretty much everybody. The third one, yeah, that's a little bit more invasive and a little bit more expensive. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.